Hello and welcome to Fine Dining in the UK, podcast episode 15. The podcast brought to you by www.finediningguide.co.uk. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Derek Bulmer, editor of Michelin. Welcome, Derek. Thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure to be with you again. We're just going to run through a brief 10-minute interview together, covering some highlights of Michelin. Would you please start off by telling us a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, sure. um, My main responsibility is to represent Michelin and to provide our readers with the best quality uh, possible selection um, of hotels, guest houses, restaurants and pubs. Um, I'm specifically responsible for four publications. Uh, the Great Britain and Ireland Guide is the main one, of course. Um, the London Guide is, is an extract from that, presented in a different way. Um, then there's the Eating Out in Pubs Guide, which is an update of all the best pubs once a year. Uh, and finally, the Main Cities of Europe Guide, which, uh, which brings with it some additional responsibilities for uh, Nordic capitals and, and and capitals in Central Europe. In addition to that, uh, I and my team assist with some of the new city guides that are being made around the world. And with the launch of the GBI guide for 2010, what are your overall observations of trends in the marketplace? Well, I think the first thing we've noticed is that uh, the industry has been very resilient, more so than we we, we feared, uh, and that the restaurants are surviving the the recession better than we imagined they would. Uh, they, they've been quite um, imaginative, some of the chefs, in, in, in putting on different menus that keep the customers coming through the door. I mean, we've seen actually credit crunch menus on, which are specifically designed for these, you know, straightened economic times we're in. So um, I think those restaurants have, have kept their customers and they'll be well placed to uh, to go forward when when you know times get better and are there any trends that you've seen in the guide that you'd like to elaborate on sure I think we've seen a continuation of, of trends that I've talked about with you for several years now really this this idea of more flexible informal or informal dining um, and I think a new trend that we're beginning to see emerge, and we're probably going to see more of in the future, is this is idea of tapas-style dining, um, but break, breaking away from the you know the more structured menus that we're used to, and just being flexible with lots of small dishes and ordering as many or as few as you want. And we're seeing more and more serious chefs going down this particular route. And the rising stars that came into the guide a few years ago. Could you clarify what that means to us for both readers and chefs? Sure, yeah. I mean, the rising star symbol was something we introduced five years ago, right across our European range of guides. Um, The idea was to give our readers, really, uh, a little bit more uh, of an insight into our thinking, to show them um, who was right at the top of their particular category they were in and who they might be looking at for um, you know, promotion in, in the years to come. Um, it's had two effects, really. It, it's, it's, um, it's made the, the, the readers write to us a little bit more about those targeted places because obviously they, 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 they give us a lot more feedback about them. Uh, and sometimes it gives the chefs the impetus just to that final push they need to take them out of one category and put them into another. So it's like an incentive? It's a bit of an incentive and it, and, and, it, and it's opening up our uh, thoughts a little bit to our readership, something we didn't do in the past. In terms of the coverage model for Michelin, how does that work? Well, our, our, our inspectorate is, is very mobile, in fact. We've got about uh, 80 inspectors in all. Uh, 70 of them are, are based and work uh, most of their time in, in Europe. 
and we've got another 10 based, some in uh, in the US and some uh, in uh, in the Far East at the moment. So, but th they're a very mobile crew. So, uh, a team is not just limited to working in in the country of the guide they make. Depending upon the languages they speak, they can work anywhere for Michelin. And and our British inspectors do particularly well with that because they they not only cover GB in Ireland these European cities I talked about, but they're also in high demand all around the world for the new series of city guides that we're making. And I guess that would help with the benchmarking of standards across Europe and the world, in fact. That's that's really the whole idea of it. We're trying to get one consistent standard for entry into the guide, one consistent standard for one star and for two star and three stars around the world. And the more experience you have on an international scale, the easier it is to, to get this benchmarking. Tell us about the Main Cities of Europe guide. Are there any plans to expand that publication? This year it will be published on March the 16th. The Main Cities is, is an interesting publication because it, it allows us to uh, visit countries where no Michelin guides exist and just look at the, the major cities there. And uh, We're always looking to expand this book, in fact, uh, and most years we've been adding cities to it. And This year it will be the turn of Salzburg to, uh, to be included. Coming back to the GB&I marketplace, during these difficult times, can Michelin reassure chefs and readers that they remain focused on the entire menu and not just set meals? Sure, well it's, it's not our place to tell chefs what menu to put on and we, we'll only go along and judge what they're offering but where we find a choice and, and that choice involves perhaps um, a temporary menu that's been put on for, you know, for these difficult times we're more likely to eat from the a la carte menu because we know that in six months' time that credit crunch menu, say, will disappear and they'll go back to their normal menu. So that's the one we'd be looking at to, to judge them by long term. Coming back to the GB&I guide, there's possibly some feedback from chefs who may believe that stars are hard won in this marketplace. Do you have a view on that? Um, well, yes, I do have a view and I'd certainly agree with them stars are hard one they've in fact they're very hard one it's because we set very high standards because the industry sets very high standards and we're just reflecting the the rising standards that we find th throughout the country the one thing i would say though is that it's it's no it's no easier to to win a star today in in france or italy or indeed new york or tokyo than it is in in great britain and the reason I know that is because I've taken part in the decision-making process in all those places and I certainly don't adjust my standards to make it easier for them when I go and work abroad. It's the same standards throughout. What benefits to the reader does the City of London Guide bring? Well, I think that the City of London Guide is aimed at a slightly different person. It's aimed at Londoners, first and foremost, or, or visitors to London. Um, people are, that are not going to tour the whole of GB don't really want to buy the whole selection of GB, so they want a guide that's targeted just for the city. And be, be, because of the nature of the book, we're able to give them a lot more information, more description, more more insight into our thoughts with some tips and guidelines, etc. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a book designed specifically for visitors to the capital. Can you tell us a bit more about the editing process and the production process? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, the City of London Guide is made by the, the same team of inspectors that are making the GBN Island Guide. Um, and it's their job to supply uh, our in-house team of text writers with, with notes on the way the text should flow for, to, to describe the place to make it sound unique. So they bring back their reports to our, to our offices. The text writers write a text 
they run them back past the inspector to make sure that they picked up the essence of what he was trying to say and then finally I'd have a, a last look at them to make sure I was happy with them and then they get printed. And what is the current role of reader feedback in the production of the Michelin Guides generally? Well, reader feedback has always been important to us. I mean, so much so that we actually actively encourage it by putting questionnaires in every guide we sell, um, encouraging them to write to us, tell us about their experiences, both in the restaurants that we do recommend uh, and hotels and, and those that we don't. So we, we, we pick up a lot of new addresses by that route as well. And additionally, it, it's good to know what the readers are thinking about particular restaurants that we might be targeting for a specific award. So um, it's very useful information that, uh, that, that we use. So it essentially contributes to a decision which is made by inspectors and so on? It does indeed. I mean, at the end of every year we have something called a star meeting that lasts two or three days when we discuss in great depth all, all the candidates that we're looking at for new stars for the year. And each inspector has the opportunity to, to talk about his own meal in great detail. And at the same time, we, we look at the reader feedback on that particular restaurant because it helps us to focus on what the readers think as well, because we mustn't lose sight of the fact that they're the people we're making the guide for. The internet is about real time and publications are dating time. Do Michelin have a strategy to take advantage of what is called the information age? Well, yes, I mean, we are moving forward, as you know, Simon. Um, you know, we, we introduced the Veer Michelin website some years ago um, so that people can get our whole selection online uh, for free. Um, uh, additionally, we've uh, we've got the the iPhone app where you can download the uh, the selections of a particular country, say, to to your phone. You know, we we sell 1.2 million guides a year, so I mean it's a huge number, and we're we're disseminating this this information in lots of different forms. And whilst we haven't today got any plans for more updates than annual ones, it's something that we'll always be thinking about in the future how we can move forward in this direction. And finally, what is your perspective of the future of the Michelin publications? I think one word really sums it up, uh, expansion. That's, that's, that's what we've been doing for the past 10 years. I think you'll know that we've brought out a new guide to somewhere every year. This, this last year it was the Kyoto Osaka guide that we, we brought out. And we are expanding. Um, it's probably true to say that the most likely route will be in the city guides that we're making around the world and you'll see more expansion possibly in the US, uh, certainly in Asia. 30 years ago when I started in this job and I, uh, you know, my visiting was around Coventry and Liverpool, well the inspectors of today have much more exciting destinations that they're going off to. Well on that note we'd like to thank you very much for your time and participation and wish you and Michelin all the very best for the future. It's my pleasure Simon. That concludes podcast episode 15 of Fine Dining in the UK, the podcast brought to you by www.finedinningguide.co.uk. Until next time, happy eating.